Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Exodus, chapter 34. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can sing of the finished work of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior, and of your willingness to use his life, death, burial, and resurrection as a ransom payment for our sin and as the way to provide for us eternal righteousness and eternal life. Thank you. We pray that you would help us as we meditate upon your word this morning and worship you in your word, that you would carry us along by your spirit and accomplish your will in us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. It is wrong to characterize all people of a particular group of people, people groups, stereotypically, all white people are racist, all Jewish people are rich, all Normans think that cilantro tastes like soap, (laughs) all Polish people are, well, forget it. Each, each person should be judged based upon their own life and actions. Now, when I was a young man, Amy and I started dating, and um, this consisted of us hanging out with each other's families, which was a good environment for us to grow a healthy relationship, when at the same time I began attending the same local Christian high school with her, And one of the teachers who had some bad experiences with my brother about five years earlier tried to convince the Krosicks that I would be a bad influence on Amy. He was judging me based upon my brother's previous poor behavior. Thankfully, the Krosicks had a view that was more reflective of God's way of judging than uh, that one reflected there. And as you know, as you can see, The rest is history. God is perfectly just in all of his dealings. God is perfectly just in all of his dealings. That is our concept to consider, to ponder, to meditate on, and to worship God in this morning. We're in Exodus 34. Please join me one last time. I'll read you follow along. One last time reading through this passage, beginning in verse 5 of Exodus 34, where the Bible says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is our text one last time, and our concentration will be on that last portion of verse 7, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The word they're visiting is the Hebrew term pakad, 
Pakad, and it means to number, to visit, to attend to, to punish. And what I might just say, this is not a um, textbook definition, I think more of a summary. It's to account for, to account for. The word is used in the book of Ruth, chapter 1 and verse 6. Now you'll remember the people had a famine in the land, and so Ruth and her husband went to Moab, and there they um, started a new life. And then you'll remember that Ruth's husband died, and then her sons died. His sons had been married. You remember the story. It was Naomi, sorry, that went off. Ruth was the daughter-in-law. Naomi is despairing the loss of her husband and sons. And the Bible reflects this. She, Naomi, had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited His people by giving them bread. The term visited, there's the same term, pakad. It has the idea of attending to something, to provide something. So she had heard that God had visited His children in the land of Israel with their needs, meeting their needs. That's the concept here of visit in Ruth 1.6. The same term is used in the book of Psalms in the 8th chapter. Uh, Listen to what it says there in verses 3-5. through When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars which you have set in place, What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care, there's our word, pakad, visit, care for him. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. These are a couple of positive uses of the word pakad, this concept of visiting. God caring for his people, meeting their needs, bringing them bread, accounting for them. The word is used many times in the book of Numbers, and it's translated number. <laughs> it's like counting people. So it's accounting for something. It's numbering something. It's visiting. It's caring for. There are also negative uses of the term, and I want for us to take a look at one of those usages, please. Psalm 59, the 59th Psalm. We want to see one negative use of this concept. Obviously, in the context of Exodus 34, verse 7, the visiting is on the negative side, since God is visiting the people based upon sinfulness. Psalm 59, verses 1 through 5. This is a psalm of David. We'll read, starting in verse 1, and read down through verse 5. The word that we're looking for, that is our word, pakad, is found in verse 5. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. He's pleading with the Lord to protect him. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, or for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake! Come to meet me and see, O Lord God of hosts, our God of Israel. Sorry, you, Lord God of hosts, our God of Israel. Rouse yourself to, say it with me, punish all the nations. Spare none of them who treacherously plot evil. So there's our word. Awake to punish. 
Arise to punish. Rouse yourself to punish. Who? People that have come up against him. That's the concept. So depending on its context, it can mean to care for something, to provide for something, to account for something or count something, or to bring punishment. So the question we have to ask ourselves, because remember, we're doing a study of how God introduces himself. And one of the concepts that God brings to the table when introducing himself is he says, I visit the sin of the fathers on their children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God introduces himself this way, and so we need to have at least some concept of what in the world he's saying about himself. So here's a question. Is God saying that he is one who will by no means clear the guilty, and the result is that he will punish children and grandchildren for the sins of their fathers? Is that what he's saying? So the first main question we have in our, our consideration is, does God punish children for their father's sin? Does God punish children for their father's sin? And we're going to look in two sources in the Old Testament to try to get an answer to that question. First, we'll look in the law, and second, we'll look in the prophets. So first in the law, this will be on the screen, Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 16 gives this very succinct answer to that question. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. In other words, God does not bring forth punishment, direct punishment, on a person for someone else's sin. So let's follow this a little further. We want to look into the prophets. Take a look at Jeremiah 31 for a moment. Jeremiah 31 is one of those outstanding chapters of all of the Old Testament. We don't have time to dive into it. The second half is particularly delicious, I would say. I could feast upon the end of Jeremiah 31 for days on end, just considering the faithfulness of God and how He will fulfill His promises. He will never lack in in fulfilling His promises. He is a glorious, faithful, covenant-keeping God. Love it. At the beginning of the chapter, he says that he's loved this rebellious people with an everlasting love. That is also uh, something that we could feast upon. But we want just to look in the middle of this Glorious chapter at verses 29 and 30 to answer the question, does God punish children for their father's sin? Verse 29. In those days they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. In other words, if, if I eat a sour grape, my son's not going to be like puckering. You know what I mean? It doesn't work that way. If I eat a sour grape, whose mouth is going to pucker? Mine. So the expression is kind of silly to say, I'm going to eat a sour grape and your teeth will will be set on edge or your face will pucker. Well, head over to uh, Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel 18, please. Take a right from Jeremiah. Go through Lamentations. You'll find Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel is going to use a similar expression in this text with a similar application 
Similarly, similarly answering our question, does God punish children for their father's sin? Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me. So this is not an opinion, this is God declaring something. The word of the Lord came to me. What, uh, what do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins, what does it say? God punishes the sin of the sinner. Look a little further now at verse 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Look down at verse 30 now. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, Everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgression, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. In the midst of this, he says, if a person turns from his iniquity, he will spare himself from the punishment of his iniquity. And if someone turns from righteousness and turns toward wickedness, he will be judged for his wickedness. And so there's a lot going on in the text. But the idea that we very, very clearly understand is God holds accountable the one who sins for their sin. I'm not accountable for my daddy's sin or my son's sin. Now, in a certain sense, this is a different discussion, a father is responsible for his household and how it's run, correct? And a, a shepherd in a church is responsible for the care of souls and will give an account for people's souls. They should do this with joy and not with grief because that would be unprofitable for you. Remember that in, in the book of Hebrews. So these are, these are clear concepts that have a parallel but different uh, conception. We're talking right now about someone being punished for Sin, and the one that is punished for sin is the person that sins. All right. Well, we see this also in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is done for what he has, excuse me, what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So we, we clearly have answered this question, this straightforward question. Is a child punished for their father's or parents' sins? And the answer is no. That's not the end of the discussion, however. We have to ask some subsequent questions. The second question we want to ask to this is this. Do the decisions of one generation impact the lives of subsequent generations? Do the decisions of one generation impact the lives of subsequent generations? So I'll ask another question of that as a way of thinking through it, do the decisions of the Supreme Court impact following generations? Of course it does. Of course generations are impacted by those decisions. How many babies have been killed since Roe versus Wade? 
How many people have had to deal with their own moral dilemma since then? I'm not taking them off the hook for their moral dilemma. I'm saying that their being placed in that situation was a result of a previous generation's decision. How many people's lives will be shattered while exploring sexual patterns that are contrary to God's design and what is best for them? This generation's decisions in these areas will have ripple effects for years to come. Greta Thunberg wants us to cry about ruining the environment. And I want us to cry about ruining our souls. If my son went on tour preaching about our country, how our country has been irresponsible about their perspectives on sexuality and gender, he would be persecuted. But this climate change activist is being lauded. The Bible gives us ample illustrations of how God has allowed a generation to make their own choices, resulting in consequences that lasted longer than their own lifespan. I will bring your mind to a city in ancient times in the Middle East, a city called Kadesh Barnea. God instructed His people to enter into that land and to possess that land of promise. The people of that generation sent spies into the land, 12 of them. Remember this little, the little song? Ten were bad and two were good. Remember that whole thing? Uh, the spies went in. They brought the reports back. The people heard the reports. And they chose not to obey the Lord. The Bible calls this unbelief. Right? In the book of Hebrews. What was the result? All of that generation and their children would wander in the wilderness for 40 years. 38 years more after that, the two that they already had already spent. So I ask you this question. Did the six-year-old of that generation help with making the decision? Did he have a vote? No. But that six-year-old suffered the consequences nevertheless because the sin of one generation impacts the life of the following generation. Let's take a look at another biblical illustration, a similar time frame, a little after that, but Joshua chapter 1, please. What we're trying to do is to be faithful in understanding how God introduces Himself. God has introduced Himself with, with wonderful superlatives. And we're all very happy about those superlatives. He has also introduced Himself as a God who doesn't clear the guilty. And one of the demonstrations of not clearing the guilty is that the sinfulness of one generation will impact the generations to come. He visits the sins of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. We have to understand what this means to understand how God introduces himself because we're people that want to follow and know God, right? And so we have to do the work of figuring this out. We're in Joshua chapter 1. Let's take a look beginning in verse 1. 
After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving. Hear that? Giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every, did you hear that? Place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have what? Given to you, just as I, what? Promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. Listen carefully, verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Is everyone clear? How were they going to attain the land? God's promise, given. Could someone thwart that plan? His promise, no man will be able to stand before you. All right. We're all confident, yes? And the people at that time were confident, too, until they encountered something they didn't like. Let's take a look at a few passages in the book of Joshua. Chapter 15, please. And verse 63. Joshua 15.63, but the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, what does it say? Could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Class, did God fail them? Does God ever fail? Can God fail? So where does the problem lie? Not with the Jebusites, with the children of Israel. Look at chapter 16 now, in verse 10. It says, However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who live in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. Chapter 17 and verse 13 now. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor. Labor, but let's read the rest with me, please. Verse 13. But did not utterly drive them out. Ruh row. Chapter 23, please. Beginning in verse 6. Here is the charge, beginning in verse 6, that we're picking it up at verse 6. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it, neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these. Nations remaining among you, or make mention of their na- the name of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised." Be very confident, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a what snare and a what trap, a whip on your sides, and, ooh, this one's tough, thorn, thorns in your eyes. That sounds uncomfortable until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. 
the people took possession of the land, but rather than following through on not making alliances or forming relationships with the people, they made some of the people their servants. And this resulted in generations of battles and Israelite idol worship. It is clear from these types of biblical illustrations that the decisions of today can lead to difficult consequences for subsequent generations. Take a deep breath. We can't miss this point, however. I have good news in the midst of sorrowful news. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8, please. Don't miss this truth. While God did allow the consequences to transfer to these next generations, He did not abandon them through their difficulty. What do you remember about the Lord's dealing with His people as they wandered through the wilderness? Does anything stick out in your mind? Every day, they would wake up, except for Saturday, and they would go out of their tents, and on the ground, there would be manna. What is it? I have no idea. What is it? That's what manna means. Some kind of bready, sweet, nourishing substance. It was supernatural food from heaven. Every day, except for Saturday. But don't worry, God gave them twice portions on Friday. That is incredible. We take this for granted because like, we've read the Bible so many times and they told us the Bible stories. And we're like, yeah, okay, God gave them bread from heaven. Can, can you imagine walking out tomorrow and seeing loaves of bread on your lawn? I'm not sure you would eat it because you'd be like, I think there's going to be mold in there. You'd probably just leave it there, right? Forget about all that. Just recognize that like, God provided them food every day. And when they complained, God gave them water out of a rock and God kept their clothes. Well, let's take a look. Deuteronomy chapter 8. We'll see the accounting of this. Deuteronomy 8, beginning in verse 1. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And He humbled you and let you hunger and, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord disciplines, the Lord your God disciplines you. I want you to think about this. The Lord's letting them know through Moses. Hey, I want to, I want to remind you. Yes, you suffered some consequences because of the sins of your fathers and, and you wandered in the wilderness, but I never forsook you. I led you all the way and I fed you all the way and I gave you drink all the way and I kept your clothes safe all the way and I made sure your sandals didn't wear out all the way and your feet didn't swell. Imagine that. Can you imagine walking in the hot sand all day long and your feet being like, yeah, I feel great. 
fried chicken. God just takes care of people in the midst of difficulty. This is what he does. When his people forsook him, they went after other gods. In the days of Joshua, God allowed his people to be distressed by surrounding nations. They disobeyed. They, They made alliances. God allowed other nations to come in and oppress them. But in the midst of these periods of time where they were oppressed, the people would cry out to the Lord. God would hear their distress, and he would send a deliverer, a judge. Listen to the way that God conveys this in the book of Judges, chapter 2 and verse 18. Whenever the Lord raises up judges for them, raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. Listen to what he says. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groanings because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. This this is something that we've got to understand. When God allows consequences to, to generationally be there, He doesn't abandon us in those consequences. He is there. Consequences for the sins of previous generations? Yes. Abandonment in the midst of that? No. The Bible gives us this call in Hebrews 13. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For He has said, or I like it better, that He Himself has said. He Himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my How can I fear? What can man do to me? This is good. Listen, God has not promised you a life free from difficulty and challenge. He's promised to never leave you or forsake you. He's promised that he will dwell with you and go with you and enable you for those challenges that he allows. And he will accomplish something through those difficulties. You might not even know what he's accomplishing in you. You might not even know how he's transforming your heart and making you what he wants you to be and making you a a fit servant to minister to someone else. You have no idea sometimes. But he's faithful to do what he's called us to do and to accomplish his will in us. Yes, so one generation will suffer the consequences for the choices of the generations before. So this leads us to a third question about this concept. Remember the concept is visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So we want to understand this next question I think will help help give us some, some furtherance of understanding as well as maybe some way to apply these truths uh, to our lives. Do the patterns established by parents influence the life patterns of their children? Do the patterns established by parents influence the life patterns of their children? And for this, we want to head back to the book of Exodus. If you're in Deuteronomy, you're going to take a left through a couple books and you'll get to Exodus. Exodus is the um, second book in our Bibles. If you get to Genesis, you've gone too far. If you're in Leviticus, keep going. Or numbers. We're in Exodus chapter 20. And this passage is the recording of the Ten Commandments. And we're going to see just a little sliver of it because in God's call 
for us to not take his, uh, not bow down to other idols or to worship anyone but himself. God introduces himself a little bit very similarly to the way he does to Moses in Exodus 34. But he adds something here that we don't have in Exodus 34, which I think God intends our minds to fill in this gap. Listen to what it says in verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. What did you say? What's the next part say? Of those who hate me. The iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Listen, if, if a home demonstrates disdain for the Lord, that sets a pattern for that home and those children that many times the children follow. They follow that disdain. Why is that? And there are exceptions. It's because the natural bent of the human heart is enmity toward God. The natural bent of the human heart is enmity toward God. Listen to what Romans 8 says. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed it, what does it say? Cannot. Inability. Ephesians chapter 2 reiterates this concept in a different way. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you all once lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of your body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I think what we can see is the, the bent of the human heart naturally, it follows very similarly to Cain and how God dealt with Cain and what God instructed Cain about his own sin. Listen to what God says in, Deuteron uh, in excuse me, Genesis chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. But for Cain and his offering, he, God, had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, the right thing, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. This is true of every human being, sin is trying to rule over us. Parents must teach their children not to trust their heart, not to be ruled by their passions. This doesn't mean that you can't follow a career track that, is, uh, that you're passionate about but rather it means that the passions of your heart cannot be trusted to guide your life. Parents need to teach their children that passions can't be trusted. Your heart can't be trusted. Why is that, class? The heart of man is sinful above all things and desperately 
wicked. My heart will lead me away from the Lord and not toward the Lord. If we do what comes naturally, we will not experience the supernatural guidance and power of God's grace. The patterns that we establish as families can either enhance our children's passion for the gospel or derail it. You believe that? I I believe that. Of course, we all know that God is bigger than our parenting skills, and He does accomplish His purposes regardless of us. But it is essential that we see the impact that we can and should have on our children toward loving Honoring, worshiping, and serving God. We are to bring up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. We should say with Joshua, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we should follow the pattern that God gave to His people Israel many years ago. Take a look, please, at Deuteronomy 6. This will be our last text for this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord Lord our God, The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command you today, or that I command you today, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So now, you say, all right, well, I'm going I'm to put the little thing on here, and I'm going to you know, have it on my arm, and I'm going to put it on my doorpost. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the religious response to it. What's the response? What's the heart response to this? Who rules over your life? Who do you love? Who do you worship? Of whom do you speak? We can speak about the gospel all day with a negative tone and make a negative impact. Or we can speak of the good news of Jesus Christ with the greatest reverence, respect, and admiration of the Lord as possible. And it it exudes a passion, a joy, a peace, and a patience with people, those in our house, those in our church, those in our workplace, those in our neighborhoods, the, the, the gospel on display in our lives because the gospel is the meditation of our hearts because we recognize who God is, what kind of a God He is. It marks us. 
and our children seeing a love and an admiration for the Lord rather than a duty performance before the Lord, the difference, the difference that that displays is night and day. Duty is not what, the, what is the call of the day, friends. Delight is what is the call of the day. Do you know? Do you know who God is? He's gone a long way toward telling us about himself in Exodus 34 when he tells us that he is the sovereign ruler, the Lord, the Lord. When he tells us that he is abounding in mercy, forgiving sin. He's abounding in grace, providing, providing what we need, ultimately what we need for eternal life, ultimately what we need to live the Christian life. He's gracious. He is abundant in steadfast love. He is, he is without a doubt loyal to those that are his people. He will never, ever turn his back on those who are his people. Do you, do you recognize the benefit of knowing one day I won't wake up and God will abandon me? God won't say, well, you didn't do good enough. You, you don't please me enough. You're not smart enough, good looking enough. You, you don't make the line. You won't make it into my kingdom. You stink. God is covenantly bound to those that have turned from their sin and turned to Jesus Christ. He calls us his children. Jesus calls us his brethren. He carries us to God. God is loyal to us to the nth degree, to infinity and beyond. God also does not clear the guilty. And the guilt and sinfulness of man has ripple effects. Aren't you thankful that in God's sovereign plan, he had a way to remove our guilt, that his justice toward our sin would be satisfied? I wonder, friend, has God's justice toward your own personal sin, the soul that sins, it shall die, has God's justice toward your sin been satisfied? We talked about propitiation last week, so I'm not going to re reiterate it entirely, but just know that on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's wrath against sin, my sin, because I've turned to Jesus for salvation, God's wrath against my sin has been removed forever. He doesn't clear the guilty. He makes us guiltless through the Lord Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean that my sin doesn't make a negative impact on others. And I need to think about this. Think about the way you ordered your life. It impacts your kids. It impacts your friends. It impacts your neighbors. It impacts your fellow uh, employees, your, your co-workers. It impacts the church. And the patterns that we establish can influence others positively as well. As we are fervently following after the Lord, the Lord can capture someone's attention and turn them to himself or encourage another believer who has lost their focus. What we do in this life matters, and God is telling us this with this glorious introduction of himself that he reiterates time and time again in the Old Testament. So we would know him, so we would worship him, and so we would tell the nations of him. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, you know what each one of us needs. I don't. 
but you do. And so we pray even now as we pray and as we sing, you through your spirit would apply your word to our hearts and call us to turn where needed to respond in thanksgiving where appropriate to rejoice without a doubt because of your goodness, because of your working. And we pray that you'd help us to live lives that are reflective of your nature and that you would spare the generations to come. We commit ourselves, we commit this church to you. In Jesus' name, amen.